0: Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of the Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of the Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm swell.
1: I am so happy to be talking about movies with friends.
0: First up in controversies and controversies, we head to Korea, where a box office scandal has embroiled that country's film industry. Uh, Korea is one of the one of the few. I don't know about few. It's not too many not too many nations one of the few nations in the world to keep track of ticket sales pure pure numbers of tickets sold rather than box office dollars right uh, it turns out that studios and distributors in korea uh, were bulk buying early morning and late evening showings of films in order to artificially inflate returns. Uh, 69 executives from theater chains and 24 distributors were referred for prosecution by investigators who claim that more than 300 movies had their ticket numbers inflated over the last five years. Now the distributors, they say they're being unfairly targeted by the cops uh, as it has been an open secret for years that exhibitors would only show the movies if there were enough pre-sales and that the practice isn't really nefarious as the cops are making out. You know, some of those sales and include press screenings, VIP screenings, other events. I'm fascinated by this story because you often hear whispers of this sort of thing all over the world. In China, for example, I'm I'm pretty sure this is another one of these open secret situations. Uh, Theater chains would divert sales from American films toward... Films that were produced in China, thus decreasing the amount of revenue headed out of the country and making Chinese features appear more popular with the native audience. I don't think that that is necessarily still the case, uh, but it definitely was as of five or six years ago. And in the U.S., these rumors often get wrapped up into culture war trappings. So, like, I remember reading Reddit threads, people people talking about the ghost theaters uh, for Black Panther and Captain Marvel, right? The suggestion being that Disney was buying out theaters to inflate the numbers so their first movies with a black hero and with a female lead didn't tank. You saw something similar with Sound of Freedom, where people who simply could not understand why this, you know, terrible QAnon movie was so popular suggested that, They were overcounting the box office grosses through bulk sales that the pay it forward campaign that the studio has uh, championed is a total scam, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Peter, when we were discussing this, you mentioned the New York Times bestseller list, which goes to great lengths to avoid counting bulk purchases, but some still slip through the cracks. And it's interesting because, again, the bestseller list is another one of these kind of culture war flashpoints when we when we start talking about culture and movies and books and stuff. Um, Is this just an inevitability when we treat so much of culture like a political sporting event to be won rather than, you know, art to be appreciated and enjoyed?
1: I think something that many listeners may not know is that the best selling book in America in any given week is often not the, the number one best selling book on the New York Times bestseller list. In fact, the best selling book in America in any given week may not appear on that list at all. Now, this is not always true. This isn't true. I, I don't know how many weeks of the year this is true, but this is at least sometimes true because of the way the New York Times counts book sales. And what they do is um, they basically survey a bunch of uh, booksellers and try to see who, like which books are actually selling you know, in individual or, you know, very small lots to something approximating normal humans who actually read books. Now, the rules are more complicated than that. I'm definitely compressing a bunch of this stuff and people like, it's actually, it's quite complex system. But what that means is, if, for example, a whole bunch of churches decide to buy copies of a book for uh, everybody who's going to that church um, or offers copies for sale through the church, in which case many people in the church buy copies. And this happens all over the country. And a book sells thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of copies through something like that. Then it probably isn't going to be registered on the New York Times bestseller list. Again, it's complicated. It, this, the rules are I, I'm making generalizations here. And The reason is that if you allowed those big bulk purchases to count, then the system could be manipulated. Indeed, the system is sometimes manipulated. I know just from being in Washington, D.C. and working in in journalism and working in the nonprofit world that there are efforts at nonprofit type organizations sometimes to boost the sales of books written by senior people at those organizations. And I want to be clear, I'm absolutely not talking about any organization I have ever personally worked at. That does not happen at anywhere I've ever worked. But I've heard about this from friends at other organizations. And like that sort of thing happens. And most of the time, you know what? It fails. But every now and then I've also heard stories of, ooh, this person has a number one or number three bestseller on the New York Times list. And here's how I did it from somebody who works for that person. Somebody orchestrated a campaign for that to happen. So basically these, like what's happening in Korea is a version of that, except, except the way that Korea is doing it is they're charging people at, like with a crime. And this is what seems crazy to me. We should perhaps frown on this. You should maybe laugh at it a little bit if you hear this story at a cocktail party in, in, uh, in Washington. Um, but we shouldn't make this illegal. We should expose that it's happening, be clear about what's happening and then say, well, that's kind of fake. That's maybe not really happening, presuming that's if that is the case. And one of the reasons it shouldn't be illegal is because if you read this Hollywood Reporter article that reported on all of this is that it's actually pretty clear that it's quite difficult to determine which of these bulk purchases are legitimate, like genuinely legitimate, just part of doing a, a very normal part of doing business, buying out screenings for critics, for people who have backed the film, for that sort of thing. And which are, in fact, campaigns to, to inflate sales and sort of mess with the mess with the stats. But even if it's a campaign to inflate sales and mess with the stats, this is two private parties trading money it's, it's who is being hurt by this like this is not this should not be illegal this should not be people going to jail this should be a, a write up in the trades and people go ah that's terrible
0: i mean i can see i can see the argument for it being illegal in a securities fraud sort of way right we are making our product look more valuable therefore the you know our stock price will go up 20 cents when the new box office release comes out and that that is a type of fraud i mean i can, but i but i take your general point uh and, and again i think i I think what's interesting about it is there's a way to look at this and say, like, oh, this is confirmation that all the crazy conspiracy theories I believe about the movies to be true. Right, Alyssa? I mean, I feel like this is a, this is like a manna from heaven from the, from the Reddit thread people.
2: Yeah, and I'm sure that it, this story will be taken as such in some quarters. But it actually made me think of something rather different, which is that as a matter of public policy, this is a sort of adorable scandal, right? I mean, it's— The idea that a government agency in the United States would be spending time on this is just hilarious. But as a matter of culture, it is actually good to have a rough but reasonably accurate sense of what things are popular. And we've talked about this a lot in terms of the lack of transparency in streaming, which, you know, has been bad for artists because they can't make the case for how much they should be paid, what their value to various networks is, but also has been kind of bad for our sense of a mass culture because if we don't have a strong numerical sense of what is actually popular – It is very easy to continue fragmenting or to be confused about what's successful, why things are successful. And then it's very easy for sort of false narratives to take place about, you know, whether or not something is boosted, but also big social questions about, for example, whether movies with black leads don't travel abroad or whether, you know— stories that center women are popular and can gain audiences outside of other women. And so, you know, some rough sense of what's popular and some granular sense of who it's popular with is useful from a sort of labor perspective and from the perspective of actually building a mass culture.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, this is this is the thing is that, it, it, again, I totally agree with Peter that it probably shouldn't be illegal, but I do think it is— uh, it's it warps what what people think is actually working in the industry. And if you don't know what's working in the industry, it's hard to have a conversation about what is being made and what should be being made. I mean, like, there, you know, this is a this is a this is a market, right? The The if the market signals are skewed, that's bad for everyone.
2: Yeah. And look, I think it's, you know. It's good for liberal audiences to understand if something like Sound of Freedom is actually popular because it helps quantify how popular certain kinds of messages are in the general public, you know, whether a communication strategy that, you know, starts with this sort of generalized narrative about child victimization is, you know, kind of popular and a gateway drug for people, you know, it is it is healthier to have a culture where when something is popular, people can be curious about it and why it's popular as opposed to assuming that it's all a conspiracy theory and that the you know alleged popularity of something is sort of just there to be discredited. Curiosity is better than conspiracy.
0: Yeah. You saw it again with the uh, Richmond, North of Richmond uh, guy, right? Like immediately, as soon as that song took off, I saw people being like, oh, this is AstroTurf fake. This can't this guy can't possibly be as popular as he's And I'm like, I I mean, I don't know, man. It really it really seems to be like, you know, a gimmick song like you might see on Inside Lewin Davis or something. Like that that like I I could see this being popular and taking off, going viral on the internet. Weirder weirder things have gone viral than that.
2: Right. Have you seen the internet?
0: Yeah. It's
1: also I think people misunderstand what PR agencies do to make things go viral. They can sort of light a a tinder stick and hope it becomes a a fire, but they can't actually build the bonfire themselves. Like PR companies spend all day long trying to make stuff go viral. And yes, it helps in many cases to have a PR company, a big machine behind you versus not having one at all. On the other hand, PR companies fail all the time. To make things go viral, it is very far from a guarantee. Like even the most successful companies have limitations because if the thing itself is just not that interesting, then nobody's going to share it. And most of the time when you see something go viral in a way that catches a a huge amount of people's attention, like just a a lot of attention, like the Richmond of North Richmond song. Most of the time it is because, at least partially because of something intrinsic to the work because it actually struck a nerve because people actually wanted to pay attention to it for whatever reason
0: all right, so what do we think? Is it a controversy or a controversy uh that we as a culture spend so much time just kind of fighting about how popular popular things are like i i feel like that's really the the nub of the story here alyssa
2: um it's non controversial it's a sort of a good thing to fight about
0: peter I think it's
1: A controversy that misreporting the stats is illegal, and I think it's just the nature of human beings to fight about which things are number one.
0: I think it's a controversy. I think those Koreans should go to jail for a long time. They're monkeying with the sacred business of film box office stats, and I won't have it. I won't have
1: it. Uh, we finally found Sonny's religion.
0: I won't. I won't. I won't. I, I, I'm like the, uh, I'm like Ned Beatty at the end of the table in Network. You're, they're meddling with primal forces. Can't have that. All right. Make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode, where we're going to be talking about R-rated comedies and their uh, recent softness at the box office. Speaking of R-rated comedies... On to the main event, Strays. Strays is a pretty simple, straightforward sort of movie. It proposes that it is funny to imagine dogs talking, particularly if those dogs are talking about dirty things like sex and getting drunk. And especially, double especially, if those dogs are voiced by well-known people like Will Ferrell and Jamie Foxx. Farrell plays Reggie, whose owner, Doug, who's played by Will Forte, does not think he's a good boy. Doug wants to get rid of Reggie, uh, but he doesn't have the decency to like take him to a no-kill shelter or something like that. Instead, he just keeps driving him further and further away from the house and leaving him there in the middle of nowhere, only to be disappointed when the dog returns. Eventually, Doug drives Reggie three hours away into the big city, leaves him there. Lost and scared, Reggie is saved by Bug, who's voiced by Fox. Uh, Bug teaches Reggie how great life can be as a stray. They are joined by Maggie, who's voiced by Isla Fisher? Fisher? I don't know. Isla. Uh, Isla, thank you. And Hunter, who's voiced by Randall Park. Reggie decides to track Doug down so he can bite his dick off. This is not a metaphor. It's it's quite literal. Um, Comedy is a weird thing in that nothing works for everyone uh, and trying to explain a joke kills the joke faster than just about anything else you could do assuming you're not Steve Martin explaining the theory of a stand-up comedy in his excellent memoir, Born Standing Up. strongly recommend it. All I'll say is that I'm a simple man with simple tastes. And dogs cursing is much like kids cursing and something like good boys. It just cracks me up. There's something very, very funny about it. Uh, and it helps that there are a number of solid visual surprises in this uh, picture. I laughed out loud uh, at this one celebrity cameo that I won't spoil here, uh, but he's bird watching and he he look he's like, oh, finally I see this bird. And he looks down at his list and it's just the word bird over and over again with little checkboxes next to it. I laughed out loud. It was very funny to me. I wasn't expecting it. Very funny. Though strays does suffer a bit from the uh, the fact that as is so often the case so many of the best jokes are in the ad campaign I've seen the trailers for this movie about a hundred times um, and I have thus seen many of the best jokes in this movie about a hundred times one last note you really have to hand it to Will Forte here uh, who makes Doug both evil because he hates dogs and pathetic because he's a jobless single loser no one in the history of film has ever more deserved to have their sexual organs removed by a pack of wild dogs. Alyssa, you did not seem to care for strays when we were talking about it over text. Why do you hate funny things and also dogs?
2: Oh, man. So this, I don't like gross-out humor. It's just not my thing. I don't think incongruous swearing is inherently funny, and I don't like watching people be mean to animals. Also, I will be honest, I think I'm allergic to Will Forte. Like, if he shows what? up in something, it's basically a sign that I am just not going to be happy for the next, you know, 22 minutes it's a sitcom, an hour, two hours. I just – I get that he's good at what he does, but watching – Pathetic mean losers on screen is just not something I find enjoyable. I feel, and I feel to a lesser extent that way about Brett Gelman, who also shows up in this movie, um, in to, as the victim of like the most significant gross out gag in it. And also, I just don't think the movie's jokes are funny for the most part. I agree with you about the bird watching cameo. Um, and then there are two other jokes that I thought worked. And both of them are sort of classic Will Ferrell ad lib things, one of which is an extended riff on Dirty Talk while humping a garden gnome, which um, I thought was pretty funny. And the other is just a throwaway line in they which his character
1: just just to hear you say it.
2: <laughs> I know. It was really funny. <laughs> Especially just the way like, it kept going um, and was extended throughout the entire movie. The second one is just a throwaway line about how some name, I forget what it was, is not a plausible name for a possum. <laughs> and it's like that's, both of those are just classic Will Ferrell, like taking something far too seriously – 45 degrees left of what was actually intended and work entirely because of his delivery so for me the redeeming feature of this movie is just like a nice illustration of what makes Will Ferrell a talented comedian but other than like torture horror movies it's hard to describe a movie that is just less for me that's fair. That's, That's all.
0: fair. I will say that I am a little bit disappointed to hear you badmouth Will Forte like this, who I find delightful. It's not
2: his fault. I don't think it's, it's his fault. It's clearly his I fault. Just
0: you you just were talking about how much no, you hate I, Will Forte.
2: No, it said I'm allergic to Will Forte, which is like the same way that I'm allergic to tree nuts, right? Like it's not like there is wow. nothing. What did
1: cashews do to you?
2: I mean, the last time I had them, I almost died and had to go to the emergency room. So it's like, but it's not Cashew's fault, right? It's, it's like not Will Forte's body, fault
0: that he's going right. to kill like, me if that, I watch him on screen.
2: And there's not even anything inherently wrong with Will Forte. It's just that, like, I have a particularly strong reaction to him. And I think it's, I mean, I think it is because he specializes in playing these kinds of dumpy, entitled, ridiculous characters who I just do I mean, I get the comedy. Um, I I totally agree with you that there is, like, there is no man who more deserves to be unmanned by the victim of his animal cruelty. But I just don't enjoy spending time in the company of those kinds of characters, even if they're going to be humiliated. And I don't like animal cruelty. I just, I mean... Yes, like, I'm a squishy, weak woman here. But it's like, I don't enjoy watching a dog get menaced with a baseball bat. It just makes me really uncomfortable.
0: I will say, I, I like, I, I I spent, like, 500 words in my review talking about this. Uh, and I do think it's, like, a—it's kind of a brave role to take on. I explicitly compared him to two uh, characters who were slave owners in other movies, where, like, as, like, the height of cruelty. So, like, that's, that's like, how malicious this character is. Um, yeah, which, and like,
2: I— and I feel like the maliciousness is necessary to make the denouement feel appropriate. Um, at the same time, it's very tonally jarring.
0: Yeah. Uh, Peter, what did you make? You're a dog owner and a dog lover. You you have two large dogs and have owned dogs for a long time. I also am a dog owner. I love dogs. How did you react to that character, particularly in that last 10-minute stretch, where it, like he basically is like, I'm going to beat this small dog to death with a baseball bat.
2: Or squeeze him to death, one of the two.
1: Yeah, so I I thought that the central relationship between Reggie and Will Forte's character was the movie's biggest misstep. And grounding the movie in what is essentially an unpleasant parent and abused child relationship in which the abused child has essentially no, like, is is innocent about it. Like, and, and has no, re- like, doesn't even realize that they're being deeply abused. Um is a little bit of a weird choice because what you because this is a movie that is clearly being sold to people who like dogs, who think dogs are funny. And it yet it is. It starts with the the first act is basically just, oh, we're going to abuse this dog and the dog's not even really going to know it. And we're going to the dog will be kind of pathetic as a result. And also it's it didn't work for me and it set the rest of the movie like tonally, the, like I thought the movie was quite funny at times in the middle. Though I think many of the jokes were not as developed as they could or should have been, but it set everything on the wrong foot for me from the minute one, and I think you could have fixed this by. Giving our our hero dog a loving relationship with a human to begin with. And then, for example, having the movie be about uh, Will Forte's, I don't know, aging parent has a dog and the aging parent dies, right? Leaves the dog to the awful, horrible son. And so the dog knows what it's like to have a good relationship with a human. And we see yep. that there is that there's something like real and loving and that, like there's a there's a kind of core of kindness there instead of this really kind of sad and pathetic thing where the dog loves an absolutely awful scumbag of a person who I get why the movie sort of is structured the way it this way, because like clearly at some point the screenwriter creators here were like, what if Homeward Bound? except extremely vulgar. And instead of trying to get home to their loving family, it's revenge, right? Because we want, we want these to be bad dogs. I get it. Like that's, that's not a terrible concept for a, a twist on the talking dog comedy, but it's, it just doesn't work because Will Forte is too unlikable and too mean. And it, it sets the movie up as just as this like, Like there's a there's a reason that there are not that many, certainly not that many vulgar, funny comedies, movies about abused children, because effectively that's what this is, especially when you give the dog like a a kind of. When you give the dog like this much of a personality, and I don't want to say that that hitting dogs and hitting kids is exactly the same thing, and I'm try. To, but like it is, it has a, a kind of similar sort of effect because it, this is the person in power, uh, you know, in their life. This is, and it is an entirely abusive and awful relationship with not one redeeming quality, and it's just it's a little too ugly and a little too raw for about the first twenty minutes before all the funny gags
2: start. And could I just say one thing quickly? An easy way to fix that would have been to take more seriously the relationship between Reggie and Doug's girlfriend, who is in the movie for like two seconds, but is sort of the one who actually like initially picks him out and adopts him. And the movie, like he ends up in Doug's possession when the two break up because he wants to make her miserable. And you could have had a version of this where Reggie is returning both to Fight off Doug's genitalia, and to get back to his original owner. But that also, that would have required the movie to take that character seriously and also to acknowledge... Um, That control or abuse of pets is actually really common in domestic violence situations. People will not leave because they're worried about their abusers hurting their animals or because they cannot take their animals with them into shelters or supportive housing. And so you actually could have sort of doubly invested in Doug's evil. um, But to do that, you would have had to make his girlfriend an actual character and a person.
0: I think, I mean, I think that these are all, these are all... Good points and good good notes, uh, except my big takeaway here is you have to have the innocence of Reggie to unconditionally love this terrible person for the jokes to make to, to work and to make sense, especially later on. Because I mean, like this is the whole point, right? Is that like a, a dog will love you unconditionally no matter what? That's the kind of the whole joke here that this is this is how dogs behave and this is how dogs think and you see it in other in in other ways in the film like when you know there's an extended like 3 minute riff on the dogs turning around you know to get comfortable to before they they go to sleep right like what's going through their heads when we so like if you don't show Doug being so awful and terrible and like frankly abusive i don't think it works in terms of setting up Reggie's his dogness like his dogness requires that
1: i I sort of I, I get what you're saying, but I, I disagree in the sense that if the primary joke, the movie's fundamental like observation about what is funny is that dogs will love you even when you're deeply abusive to them. I guess I just don't think it's that funny. Now, there's a bunch of funny stuff in this movie and the rest of the movie's fundamental joke that it's really funny to see dogs swearing and talking about poop and like weird Dog genitalia stuff, like all of that, very funny, and I want to see more movies about that because dogs being gross and vulgar is really funny. That's great. I'm like the whole second act here worked. I wouldn't say great for me, but I often laughed and was quite amused. But I don't think that that like a movie. targeted at people who own and presumably really like their pets and have like kind of a soft spot for them. I don't think that movie should be predicated on the idea that, man, it's pretty funny that dogs love you, even if you beat them cruelly and abuse them and leave them abandoned on the side of the road. I I guess I don't think it's all that funny. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe this is just that I'm like a softy dog odor who's had, who's like literally, literally recording this podcast within arm's reach of 125 pound bull mastiff, who is basically my best friend in the world.
2: I will add that the dogs, the sequence of the dogs getting high in magic mushrooms and going all the secret history on a Warren of Bunnies was also extremely funny. The dead bunnies, that's the kind of gruesome I can get yeah. behind. The <laughs> See, dead bunny sequence was great. That, that, also that was the great. fact that it's basically a joke, like it ends up being sort of an extended riff on like Donna Tartt's masterpiece novel, where it's like all these dogs running and be like, We didn't kill any bunnies in a drug-induced hallucinogenic Hayes state. In the woods.
0: Nope, not <laughs> at all. No, I love that sequence. So again, that is one of the things that, like, I had seen, you know, eighty percent of in the trailers before a hundred movies that I saw at the, the draft house this this last two or three months. I wish I had a device that could, like, you know, like the Men in Black neuralizer things that yeah. could just like erase like not all knowledge of trailers and advertisements from my brain the moment before I go to see a movie. Uh, one thing I will say, I, I, I think one thing I really liked about this movie. Also is the sound design in it the the sequence uh, at the the fair with the fireworks is really well done because it's they do a good job of you know putting us in the perspective of the dogs and it's really loud and the camera's moving very fast we're low to the ground they're running around it's it kind of terrifying and debilitating for them and then you cut to the perspective of a human and he's just like ooh fireworks and it's much quieter it's you know it's not It's not terrifying and scary. Again, I like I like how this movie endeavors to put you in the the, you know, headspace of a of a dog that likes to curse.
1: Again, it that that part of it is a very good idea because I don't know, probably not every dog owner, but many dog owners spend a lot of time in their own dogs heads. This is part of the appeal of having a dog: is they're doing stuff and they're doing like funny dog stuff that, eh, maybe not all dogs, but like most dogs do, right? Certain breeds have their you know particular ticks, and as it's happening, like there's a an internal monologue for the dog playing out in your head, and so I have had for the last fifteen years of my life bull mastiff monologues playing out in my head all the time. And like, frankly, when I'm, even when I'm just around the dogs, like by myself, I like, I will do their monologues for them. This is a thing that like, I know that like, whatever, I, I'm going to admit this, but I know that other people do this. I'm not the only one who does this. I have to not be the only one who does this, <laughs> but it's a, it's a good funny idea because I think a lot of people actually think a lot about what their dogs are thinking and but and obviously do a bunch of humanizing while also like making it sort of weirdly dog brained. And and yet you want that in a, the context of something more like a normal human relationship. And like, I mean, there's just a, there's a funny dog movie to be made about extremely vulgar, kind of ridiculous dogs just like on a city block or in a suburb. And maybe there's one bad human, but like most mostly they just have all these bizarre theories about humans and what they're doing. One of the best running gags in this was the idea that like humans are obsessed with collecting dog crap. Right? Like this, oh, why, why are they always like they're obsessed with it? Must be because they're making something out of it. Something secret and delicious. We can't have, like, chocolate, right? Like, again, just a great way of, like, putting, like, of, of sort of reversing the 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 dog-human psychology and, like, opening up the the idea of, like, what must these dogs be thinking? That's great.
2: Just don't have the dogs be beaten. Yeah, so a good movie about talking dogs is, like, halfway between Strays and Pixar's Up, right? Yeah. With the talking dogs.
0: All right, uh, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on strays. Alyssa.
2: Thumbs down.
1: Peter. I did laugh a bunch at this movie, but I'm going to give it a thumbs down because ultimately, I, I actually I don't think it fundamentally works and it's not a movie I'm going to watch
0: again. Thumbs up. I laughed many times in this movie and that's all a comedy really is supposed to make you do is laugh. So I think I think I think you're both being too hard on this, this delightful picture and Will Forte deserved to have his job. He has to be evil. He has to be oh. wicked. <laughs> Because you have to you have to want his dick to get ripped off in that in those final moments. You have to want it. If you're making don't an argument
1: it. for a basically like a Takashi Mike film but with <laughs> vulgar dogs. And if Takashi Mike makes the talking dog revenge film, I will go see it and maybe I'll like it. But this one
0: didn't work. So dog audition is what we need. All right, uh, that is it for this week's show. Make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If no grow will die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter. That's Sonny about I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week.